Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Clerical Errors. It's Peter, the producer. We didn't get a chance to record an episode this week, uh, but we do have a great episode here that we recorded a while back at a Toxin Tastings event. Uh, These events were actually the inspiration for the podcast. So last time we had a Toxin Tastings event, uh, we recorded Pastor Berg's talk on the disposal of our dead, burning or burial. So I'm going to go ahead and play that now for you. Uh, Enjoy. Good evening, everybody. Nice to see you all here. Can everyone hear? In the back? Everything good? Awesome. You know, what a morbid crowd to come out for uh, a whole presentation on death and burial, but, you know, I guess, you know, it's summertime, guys. You should be having fun, but even the kids are here, so. All right, so the title for tonight, Disposal of Our Dead, Burial or Burning. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the is the common objection, right? So um, cremations have been uh, steadily rising in our society in the last few decades, okay? By 2050, over you know, the majority of um, interments will actually be cremations, okay? So the question is, is what does the Bible have to say about this? Uh, how should Christians deal with this? What is the best confession to make and the like? That's what this presentation is about. So uh, the first common objection that we get when we talk about these things are uh, there is no biblical uh, prohibition against cremation. It doesn't say thou shalt not cremate. Right? Therefore, it's, it's permissible, right? Well, I think that's a very, very legalistic way of looking at this. Okay? Look at the Bible. And I have two Bible passages on your uh, sheet here. Uh, Romans 15.4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we know that the Old Testament and, in, and indeed the New Testament were written for our learning. There is nothing in the Bible that, uh, from the littlest detail that isn't important for our faith and for our life. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10.11 says something similar. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If you only look at the Bible as a set of rules, as a set of prescriptive thou shalt, thou shalt nots, well, you're missing out on a real uh, depth of the Bible. Why else does the scriptures, why why else do the scriptures um, record these events for us? Why do they talk about things like burial? Why do they, is it just simply incidental? Well, no, there's nothing that the Holy Spirit writes that's incidental. There's nothing that the Holy Spirit writes that isn't important, that isn't necessary, that he, did, that he put down for our uh, faith and for our life, okay? So that's the first thing. And I think the Bible actually has a lot to say about burial and cremation, as your outlines show and what we're going to get into, okay? Not just a, a bare prescription or prohibition, but you see plenty of examples of people of faith who act in a certain way because of what they believe, 
And in the same way, uh, that should actually inform how we who believe should act. Okay? So if you have a question, raise your hand. I mean, I'll probably answer it at some point. Hopefully, there's a lot of information here. So, um, and we can go off of any tangent that you want to. So, you know, so we'll go on from here. Okay. So let's start with the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 23. This is where Abraham buys a tomb for his wife, Isaac. You know that Sarah is the only woman whose age is known in the Bible. It says that she is 127 when she dies. Okay? And that's a very, very important fact because uh, she is the mother of faith. Right? She's the only woman in the Bible where her age is given because it's important, because it's necessary. So she dies. Okay? And uh, when did, uh, does anybody know when Abraham started to sojourn in the land of Canaan? Do you know how old he was? Well, how old was he when Isaac was born? He was 99, right? He had been sojourning for 24 years in the land of Canaan, right? He had been sojourning in a land that was not his own for 24 years, a quarter of a decade, which means, if you subtract that, how old was he when he left Haran? 75, right? I'm glad we have mathematicians here because that's why I went into theology because I, that way I didn't have to do math. So here he had been in the promised land for a long, long, long time with his wife, Sarah, okay? He didn't own a single inch of Canaan that whole time. He lived by faith. And yet, what is the first land that he owns in Canaan? A tomb. The first land that he owns in Canaan is a tomb. That should strike us as being something pretty darn important. Okay? So how does this go about? Well, it is his first land purchase in the Bible. Okay? And so what does he do? As Abraham approached the owner of the field and the cave where he is going to bury his wife, he offers that man... Ephron the Hittite, what it's worth. There's no haggling over the price. Why? Because Abraham wants this sale to be incontestable, that he didn't cheat Ephron the Hittite out of any of his money. Okay? So there's not only that, but where is this done? This isn't a private sale, because at this point there are no contracts. So how do you do contracts in the ancient world when most people don't know how to write or read, you do it in public. So as we can see, this is done in the presence of the sons of Heath before all who went in at the gate of the city. The gate of the city was like our modern courthouse and police station and all that all rolled into one. It's where all of the transactions happened. Okay, So this is done publicly. This is done uh, legally. Okay. And not only that, but Abraham probably paid an exorbitant price for this land. Now, while the weight of the shekel was kind of variable in the ancient world, if you read Jeremiah 32.9, we see that the prophet Jeremiah bought a field for 17 shekels of silver. Abraham pays like 10 times that for this field. Okay? So we see that he suffers highway robbery 
in order to make sure that this land, this tomb is his, that no one will be able to disturb the bones of his beloved wife. That should teach us something. We see that Abraham is very diligent, he is very careful, and he's very precise when he's burying his dead wife. We see that this cave at Machpelah, is what it's called, uh, is very, very important to the later generations of the patriarchs as well. Isaac is buried there. Jacob and Leah are buried there. And we see that Rachel is not buried there, but she's buried in Bethlehem, right? And not the one in Zebulun, but she's buried at the one in, uh, in Judah, right? right? That's why one of our favorite um, Christmas verses, Micah 5.2, says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah. Why? Because there's another Bethlehem, right? Ephratah, right? So Rachel is buried there. But we see that her monument is made permanent so that hundreds of years later, like a little less than 400 years later, it is still a recognizable landmark to the children of Israel. Okay? Uh, and then in Genesis 50, uh, 25, Exodus 13, 19, we see that Joseph, what did Joseph do? Right. He asked them to take his bones to the promised land. And 210 years later, that's exactly what they do. And we see in Hebrews 11 that he commands this because of his faith. Okay? So we see here that the patriarchs have a great faith. They have a great faith not only in that God will give them the promised land as a possession, but they also have a great faith in the resurrection of the body. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 34, 6, and Jude 1, 9, we see that this is the burial of Moses. Who buried Moses? God buried Moses, right? And no one knows his grave to this day. Why do you think God buried Moses and nobody knows about his grave? It wasn't about Moses. It wasn't about Moses because what would the Israelites have done with Moses' body? Worshipped it, right? They would have worshipped it. They would have thought more of the man than they thought of the, the one who gave him the words to speak, right? Now, what's interesting is we learn in Jude 1.9 that who contested, who wanted the body of Moses? The devil wanted the body of Moses. And who contended with him for it? Michael, the archangel, right? And so here we see that what does God do? He buries Moses, right? Now, would it have been a lot easier to cremate him? Then the devil couldn't have used his body, right? And yet we see that God is not a utilitarian, right? He believes and he shows that Moses' body ought to be buried, right? Even though it would have been much easier for him to uh, foil the devil's plots by just simply vaporizing the body, right? And yet he doesn't. The kings, we see in the kings that uh, there are plenty of uh, examples here of kings who uh, are buried in particular ways. So for example, Ahaz. Was Ahaz a good king or a bad king? Ahaz was a bad king, okay? He was a really, 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 really bad king. We actually hear about him in Isaiah chapter 7, right? Isaiah chapter 7 is about the Messiah, right? You hear it uh, every Christmas service, right? That uh, a virgin shall conceive and, give, and bring forth a... 
and his name shall be Emmanuel, right? So we see that Ahaz is a pretty bad king, right? And in spite of that, God gives him a great promise. Uh, but what happens to Ahaz after his death? It says that they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Okay? So there we see that the people of Israel actually uh, show that Ahaz was a wicked man after his death, right? They don't give him the honor due him. We see the opposite happened with one of his descendants, his grandson Hezekiah, in 2 Chronicles 32, 33, where they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. We know that Hezekiah uh, was king when Sennacherib, the Assyrian, uh, was besieging Jerusalem, and that God sent an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians, thus saving the city. We also know that Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and the Lord gave him 14 more years of life. He was a pious and faithful man. We also see that Josiah, uh, Hezekiah's, I think, grandson, uh, in 2 Chronicles 35, 24, he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. To bury him was to show him honor, right? He's one of the best kings that, is, that Judah ever had. He reformed temple worship. He found the book of the law of Moses. He, he was the one who cleared out all the high places and actually uh, did some amazing things in uh, the northern kingdom as well. He's one of the best kings that ever came out of Judah. So, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of this, too, is a man by the name of Abijah. His name means son of the king. And he was the son of Jeroboam I, who started uh, the revolt against, Sol against uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and formed the northern kingdom. Now, uh, does anybody know anything about Jeroboam? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? Yeah, he started out good and ended up bad, right? He started a syncretistic religion where they decided to start worshiping uh, the Lord with golden calves. Sounded, sound familiar? It should because that happened during Moses' time too, right? And he set up false temples at Bethel and at Dan at both uh, ends of his kingdom, right? To make it easy for people to come to, to worship, okay? His son, however, Abijah, was a good man, uh, a young lad, but he got sick. So uh, Jeroboam sends his wife to a prophet, okay, who's blind, thinking that he can kind of fool the prophet, right? Are prophets fooled by such nonsense? No, they're not fooled by such nonsense, right? And so uh, there is a great... Um, and so during this time, we see that uh, 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 the prophet says to Jeroboam, he says to uh, Jeroboam's wife, he says, When your feet enter the city, the child, Abijah, shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Okay? So here, God actually brings this child to death in order to save him. Something good is found in him. This child still believed in the true God. And God not only takes him by death, 
from this valley of sorrows, but he also allows him to be buried, to be buried with honor. And we see that that is not going to be the case for the rest of Jeroboam's line. In a world that watches Avengers Endgame by the billions, to learn about epic heroism by made-up characters, where people pay billions of dollars to teach their children about the eternal battle between good and evil from said made-up characters. Where at $10 a pop, you can hear about the iconic superhero who may or may have not died to save the universe. No spoilers. Comes a podcast that is absolutely free, where two pastors and one vicar seek to muster up enough focus to tell you about a real battle between good and evil and a real savior that really did die for the sins of the world. Berg. <laughs> this is going to be rad, dude. I can't. Wow. This. Okay. Now, now you've got me excited. Bullhagen. You know, when I work out, you know, I clang and bang in the weight room. Vicar. I'm Pastor Bowen someday. Clerical Heirs, the podcast. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the positive examples of what burial is in the Old Testament, right? If you're buried, it's with honor, right? Now, there, are the, there is the horror of not being buried. God punishes people by not, by not letting them be buried. Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26 says, And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. This is one of the punishments that God prophesies for the children of Israel if they fall away from his worship, if they fall away from believing and trusting in him. And this punishment of no burial is set alongside the punishments of madness, blindness, defeat, dread of heart, sickness, foreign occupation, and destruction. So no burial is a pretty big deal, right? Now, you remember how we were talking about Abijah just a few minutes ago? Here is the curse against his wicked father and his whole line. In 1 Kings 14, verses 10 through 11, God promises this judgment upon this wicked family. Behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Not a very good thing, right? Everybody loves dogs, right? And when everybody hears uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they're all like, oh, it's so sweet that a dog is like licking his wounds. Dogs were gross. Dogs are still gross, okay? They were unclean animals, okay? 
That's why the scriptures also say things like a sow wallowing in her own filth and a dog returning to his vomit, right? Man's best friend indeed, okay? So, no burial, bad thing. Same thing happens to Queen Jezebel. Now, anybody know anything about Jezebel? She was nice? I, I, I don't think she was very nice. Yeah, she was a pretty bad, she was a pretty bad gal, right? And we see that after she unjustly accuses Naboth, right? And uh, they kill him and stone him to death. And she steals his land for her husband. God promises a dreadful judgment on her too. First Kings 21, 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel so that she wouldn't be buried, right? This finds its fulfillment in uh, 2 Kings 9, 30 through 37. When Jehu, son of Nimshi, takes over, uh, she accuses him. She calls him names. So he tells the palace eunuchs to defenestrate her, to throw her out the window. And then he rides over her. And then he goes in and eats, and he's like, oh, yeah, I should, like, take care of her because, you know, she's the daughter of a, of a king, right? You know, we don't want to treat royalty that way because if they think we can treat one royal that way, we can treat all royals that way. So he wants to bury her. Well, he goes outside and only her hands and her skull are found. The dogs ate the rest, okay? Those poor dogs needed some kibble or something, so... We see the same thing in, Jer in Jeremiah 7.33, which is basically a repetition of Deuteronomy 28.25-26. In Jeremiah 16.4, God actually commands Jeremiah not to marry and not to have kids. Okay? He actually commands this. Why? Well, this is a divine kindness because the children born in Judah would be punished severely. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish, perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. Not a really nice thing being compared to dung, right? I mean, so same thing happens in Jeremiah 22:19, when, Je when Jeremiah is uh, calling Jehoiakim, uh, to account. Jehoiakim, if you read Jeremiah 22, is a king who built his house on unrighteousness. He heavily taxed the people of his land and would not pay uh, his workers their wages. And uh, that's because his land was basically bankrupted by Necho. To give you a little history, uh, Pharaoh Necho killed Jehoiakim's dad, took his took his, uh, Jehoiakim's older brother uh, to Egypt and basically just taxed the heck out of the land, okay? And so Jehoiakim is like, well, I got no money, but I want to be impressive, so I'm going to build a big house and just not pay my workers for it. So what is his punishment? His punishment is this. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beside the gates of Jerusalem. A donkey's burial is not a good thing. Because what do you do with a donkey? You leave it out to rot. That's all you do. Okay? And so a king 
is being compared to a dumb beast who doesn't have a soul. And just the way that we would treat its body, that's how his body is going to be treated. We see the same thing in Isaiah 14, when Isaiah uh, compares the king of Babylon to Satan. Okay, This is where we get the word Lucifer from, the morning star. That the king of Babylon, like Lucifer, wanted to ascend to the congregations of the north and be like the Most High. But God is going to bring him down in his hubris and pride, and he is going to lay him low. We see that uh, here in Isaiah 14, 18 through 19, Isaiah, well, God through Isaiah says, All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. So that's the punishment of not being buried, right? It gets even worse, okay? That's possible, right? There are punishments, divine punishments set for uh, particular sins for burning, okay? For cremation. We see in Leviticus 20, 14, that if a man marries a daughter and her mother, they are to be stoned and burned, okay? Same thing in Leviticus 21. If the daughter of a priest becomes a prostitute, the same thing is supposed to happen. Why? Purge the evil, right? And not just purge the evil, but who does the priest represent? Right, God, and especially our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so it's not just a defiling of the priest, but it's a defilement of God himself. We see the same thing happen to Achan. Anybody know about Achan? Achan stole the money from Jericho and the rich Babylonian garment. And guess what happened to the children of Israel? Yeah, they got pwned by I, which is basically like, uh, well, I would say the Vikings, but they're the worst. So um, it'd be like Green Bay getting beaten by a juvie league team. I, I see you there. <laughs> so why do they get beaten? Because Achan uh, went against the word of the Lord. And so they take him and they stone him and they burn him. Okay? This is God's wrath against sin. We also see it again in 1 Kings 13 and in 2 Kings 23. When Jeroboam establishes the calf worship, a prophet comes and says, there will be a man by the name of Josiah, one of David's house, who will come, and he will not only burn this altar, but he will also burn the bones of the priests who served at this altar upon it. Why? Because they broke the first commandment. They did not follow the word of the Lord. So Josiah comes later in 2 Kings 23. And he actually does this. He actually, they actually dig up these false priests and burn their bones on the altar. But you know what they don't do? They don't disturb the graves of the true prophets who prophesied against this altar. Okay? So there we see a dual thing. We see burning as a punishment, but we also see uh, the preservation of a burial place as honor. Right? Most of the time, prophets are not honored during their lifetime. Okay? Nobody read Jeremiah's stuff while he was alive. I think the only one listening to him was his scribe most of the time. So... And then here's the most interesting one, I thought. 
Anybody read the book of Amos? It's one of those minor prophets. But the minor prophets are a lot of fun. And the great thing is, is that they're really, really short. So, you know, you should read them because, you know, even if you uh, don't quite understand it all, it, you know, it's still the Bible. It's still God's word. And, you know, if you're concentrationally impaired, like some of us, you know, it's easy to, to read through them in a short period of time. Amos 2, 1 through 2 says this. This is God's judgment against the nations, okay? For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath and Moab shall die amid uproar. Who are the Moabites? They're actually descendants of Lot, right? Right? When uh, Lot has an incestuous relationship with his daughters in Genesis, right? With the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, right? But who comes from the Moabites? Ruth, right? So they're not all bad, okay? But we see that later on Moab uh, does a bad thing, okay? They revolt against Israel, and we see that the Edomites who fight for Israel... Uh, um, attack the Moabites and actually end up defeating them. So that gives you a little bit of context here, okay? So that's why the Moabites uh, dug up the bones of the king of Edom. Because they couldn't beat him in life, they were going to disgrace him in death. And God here judges this entire nation for what they did. They, bo they burn his bones to lime, to powder, to ash, and God then will send fire upon them. This is a just and equitable punishment, the lex talionis. An eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, and the like. Now, is there one positive uh, episode of cremation in the, in the Old Testament? Anybody? What's that? Well, that's not really a cremation, right? The one positive place where a cremation is neutral is actually Saul and his sons. Okay, King Saul, right? He was the king before David. Now, what did King Saul do? He went to go fight against the Philistines, and he committed suicide. Okay? Not a very good start, right? But the Philistines, because they hated Saul, and they hated what he had done during his life, uh, cut off his head and pinned his body to the wall of Beth Shan along with his sons, okay, as a way to disgrace Israel, to disgrace the man who had so shamed them by defeating them in battle. So the men of Jabesh Gilead, those people who had been saved by Saul early on, did a very heroic thing. They uh, snuck in to the Philistine city by night, they stole the bodies of Saul and his sons. And they actually burn the bodies. Why do they burn the bodies? Right, so, the, so that the bodies couldn't be retaken and subjected to further indignity. Okay? But we see that their bones are not burned. Because David later uh, reinters their bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. So, aside from the one exception to the rule which is done in pretty extraordinary circumstances, we see that burial 
is a very honorable way to be, uh, well, buried, right? And that cremation is usually associated with God's judgment over sin and God's wrath. So let's move to the New Testament, right? So why should we bury rather than cremate? Well, our first example is, yeah, right? That's the uh, Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, right? Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We see that uh, he was taken down from the cross so that way his body wouldn't defile the land, according to Deuteronomy, right? Because anyone who is hanged on a cross or who is hanged on a tree is a curse. That's very important for us because Christ became the curse for us, right? He who knew no sin became sin. He suffered all these things. And not only that, but he also sanctifies the tombs by lying in the tomb for three days and never seeing corruption, okay? Not only is uh, Jesus buried, but also John the Baptist and James, right? James is the first apostle who is killed for the faith, okay? We see that this can also be kind of legalistic too. Jesus actually castigates the Pharisees for their formalism uh, because what they do is they build these huge tombs for the prophets, but they don't actually listen to what the prophets say. It's like for Pastor Appreciation Month, you buy your pastor a lot of awesome stuff, but then you don't listen to him the rest of the year, right? Right? It's kind of the same way, okay? Maybe you guys don't do that, but, you know. But so, anyway, we see that in um, Luke 11, 47 through 30, 38, and Matthew 23, 9, uh, 29 through 32. So here we see examples of people being buried. But 1 Corinthians 15 gives us our theological rationale of why. Why should we be buried? Well, as we know, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church in turmoil. There are many factions in this church, uh, both in terms of um, who they follow and also theological problems there, right? There are some people who deny the resurrection in the Corinthian congregation. They don't believe that uh, the dead will rise, okay? Uh, we don't know where this came from. Uh, we see that, um, we see that uh, Paul mentions some other men in, uh, oh, where is it at? I don't know. I'll look through my notes sometime. But um, there's, His name is uh, Philotides and Hymeus, right? That these men have said that the resurrection has already happened, okay? So there were some of these thoughts going around in Christendom leading people astray, that the resurrection had already happened, right? And that the dead would not be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection, which is why we hear them at what time? Well, we hear them at Easter, right? It is, yeah, funerals, right? Especially at the, yeah, at the committal, right? When we hear these wonderful words about the resurrection of the body. So 1 Corinthians 15 starts off with really, really answering the question of what is saving faith? Saving faith 
is based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose again on the third day. If Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain, right? And you are to be pitied among all people, okay? And not only that, but you call Christ a liar, okay? But if Christ is raised from the dead, guess what? You too will rise again. What a wonderful thing, right? And he goes through all of these things, talking about the resurrection. He says Christ is the first fruits. Now, what does it mean that Christ is the first fruits? Anybody heard that kind of language before? Where do we hear that language? Yes, Leviticus, our favorite book, right? It should be our favorite book, even though it's very, very repetitious. Why should it be our favorite book or one of our favorite books, right? Leviticus is a fun book to read because we see all of the shadows in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ, right? This is what Colossians says, you know, about new moons and Sabbaths and the like, right? Let no one judge you by these things. Why? Because they are a shadow of the things to come, and the substance is Christ. And if you read Leviticus 23, you see that a man was supposed to bring the first fruits of his field to the priest. Well, what is Christ? Christ is the first fruits. He is the first offering of a new harvest. He is a token that the entire harvest is sanctified to the Lord. Our Lord was the first corpse to rise again to a new life, and that new life shall never, ever, 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 ever fade away. Jesus is not subject to death, okay? And if Christ is the first fruits, then we are the remainder of the harvest. He has matured and he has ripened, and we too shall mature and ripen in our own time. Christ is the first, and we are going to follow. Nevertheless, we are of the same harvest. So here, St. Paul is taking that Old Testament shadow or type, and he is opening it up to us. He is showing us what this really means, that just as Christ has, raised, has been raised from the dead, we too shall be like him, because we're in him. And then he uses another argument. He talks about how all died in Adam and how all are raised in him. He here talks about how Christ is the second Adam. We die because we're sinners. We die because we have that corruption in our flesh that we inherited, and not just in our flesh, but also in our soul, that we inherited from our father, going all the way back to Adam. You know what Adam actually means? The man, right? Adam was the man, right? Literally. Why do you think God named him that? Because he was the fountainhead of a new race, right? He was the first. And when he was corrupted, just like a fountainhead, what happens? It's like when you go to the uh, St. Croix River, right? It's really nice and pristine. What happens when it enters the Mississippi? Yeah, it all turns to sludge because Minnesota obviously, you know, doesn't take care of its rivers. <laughs> right? So all that clear water couldn't, you know, dilute or make, or make the sludge good again. Right? 
But Christ is the second fountainhead, and all who find life in him shall be raised, incorruptible, and be immortal forever and ever. Well, the question is then, well, how are the dead raised, right? You just hear some, like, sophomoric, you know, teenager saying this, right? Well, how is that possible, right? Well, such people are short-sighted, right? This is a mystery. It's beyond understanding. But it is analogous to the processes of nature, right? Both Jesus and Paul use, employ the idea of sowing as death and the sprouting seed as eternal life. Right? Jesus says this in John before he dies. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's interesting, too, because the Egyptians believed something the same way. Uh, they believed that they would actually sing funeral dirges as they sowed. So we don't know if they actually got this from Joseph or uh, if they had uh, kept some primordial preaching from the antediluvian prophets. We don't know. But we see that this is a, a big concept, both in the Bible and also outside of the Bible, too. But that just shows that a blind nut finds a squirrel, or a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, right? Do you know what the Germans called their cemeteries? Gottesacker. God's field. Why? Because guess what you do when you bury somebody? You plant them. What are they going to do on Judgment Day? Just like your Iowa corn, right? Spring out of the ground, right? There'll be a new crop, and, they'll, and they will live forever and ever. Isn't that what you sing for that uh, come ye faithful people come or whatever, right? Come ye thankful people come, right? In his garner evermore, right? And you do that because, you know what? That's what we do. That's, what we should, that's how we should view funerals. That's how we should view laying people to rest. It's not an ending. It's a beginning. It's a planting, right? Knowing that they will too rise on the last day and be a harvest worthy of the Lord. And one thing too, a spiritual body is not a ghostly body, right? Could they touch Jesus' body? Yes. Could they put their fingers in the nail holes? Could they put it, their hands in his side? How did Jesus prove that he was alive? He ate. He ate some broiled fish or something like that, right? So, is a, is a spiritual body a ghostly body? No, it is not. You don't become Casper the Friendly Ghost. You don't become an angel, all right? Because you are better than an angel. You are better than an angel. Why? Did the Son of God take on an angel's form? No. Did the, did the Son of God take on an angel's nature? Are the fallen angels redeemed? No. Who's redeemed? Man. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. So what's going to happen to all the dead? They're going to be raised. And you are going to be in your bodies forever and ever, just as you were created to be. You were created to never, ever die. Death is the last enemy. Death is the last enemy. Well, how do you defeat an enemy? You undo what he does, right? So what does that mean? You put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You put the soul back with the body, right? That's the only way to overcome death.
Death is unnatural, whether it happens to a baby or to a 99-year-old. Every death is untimely. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need to hear these words, because Jesus undoes that. Jesus undoes the sting of death. Jesus puts soul and body back together again. That is what he came to do. All right, so we can go a little bit into the uh, history of cremation. Now, up until the advent of Christianity, among the pagans in the world, uh, burial or inhumation and cremation uh, kind of existed side by side. Some people were buried, some people were cremated, okay? Uh, in Rome, um, we see that burial was the archaic practice, but the rich and the famous uh, were burned. They were cremated, okay? Cicero talks about this. Anybody know, here know who Cicero is? Doesn't really matter, I guess. I mean, he's just a dude who wrote a lot of cool books. So another dead white guy. So, well, not really white, I guess, you know, so... Anyway, so you know what started happening, though, when Christianity uh, began to be legalized and eventually triumphed? What do you think you see the start of? Yeah, actually, archaeologists can actually trace the spread of Christianity by the creation of cemeteries, okay? From the 7th to the 18th century, you saw no cremations in Western Europe. Okay, think about that. You have, almost, you have over a thousand years of Christian culture where there are no cremations at all. Okay? That should teach us something, right? The gospel actually changed cultures. And it got rid of things that were antithetical to the Christian faith. That's a huge thing, right? And don't kid yourselves and don't, you know, whine and complain. Oh, it's so bad out there, blah, blah, blah. You know what? They were throwing Christians to the lions, right? It was, it was just as bad. Read, uh, read uh, Rieger's book on Christ, uh, well, uh, a sex in a Christless world, and you see just how bad things were in Rome uh, during the time of Christ and the apostles. Okay, we're, we got it easy, okay? And that's the beautiful thing. What does the gospel do? It not only changes hearts, but it also changes attitudes. It changes cultures. It influences these things. It does. And so how should we act then? Should we be scared? We can be bold, right? What's the worst they can do? Kill you, right? Guess what? That's not such a bad thing, right? For me to live as Christ and die is gain, right? The worst thing they can do is kill you. I mean, they can't send you to hell. Only God can do that, right? So why not be bold? Why not speak the truth? So when do we start to see cremations coming back? It's with a dirty word that we learned in seminary. It was a period of time called the... Yeah, the Enlightenment. The German is way cooler, the Aufklärung, right? But that's the problem. Is like with the Enlightenment, you start to see other influences. You start to see a return to very pagan and godless ways of thinking, 
right? Ways that cut God out. And it starts with people who don't believe in the resurrection of the body. And one of the clearest examples of that actually takes place in America. Modern cremation in America starts in 1876. That is the first modern cremation in the United States. Okay? The guy who was cremated was a man who was a freethinker and a, uh, a theosophist. He believed in karma, and he didn't believe in the resurrection. He, at his funeral, they re had readings from uh, Charles Darwin and Eastern religious texts. Okay? That's the start of cremation in the United States, right? And very few people were cremated, uh, except for free thinkers and the like, up until the 20th century. And uh, there's a whole bunch of guys, some of the preachers like Octavius Frothingham, uh, who supported this, um, they were too liberal for the Unitarians. Okay? So, um, yeah. So, here's the conclusion. Death is the unnatural separation of body and soul. If death, the final enemy, is to be defeated, that means that Christ, our Savior, shall reunite that which has been sundered. He shall raise our bodies, these bodies, even if they have long turned to dust. And we shall be placed right back where we belong, in our bodies. If this is the case, then what is the proper confession of these glorious gospel truths? If we shall receive our bodies back, then ought we so callously destroy them? Shall we not treat our bodies, created, redeemed, and sanctified by our triune God, reverently, knowing that Christ will change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body? These things were written for our learning. The Old and the New Testament theological rationales and examples show us that the burial of our dead is the best and most consistent confession of what we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Hey, it's Peter again. So at this point, they switched over to a Q&A session, and the questions were a little hard to hear. Pastor Berg repeats most of them, but I'm sorry if we uh, missed a couple of them. Remember, if you have any questions, you can email us at feedback at clericalerrors.org. You can send us a message on Facebook, facebook.com slash clericalerrorspodcast. You can tweet us on Twitter, Q Pastor Bill Higgins saying, at me, bro. Twitter is clerical errors P, P for podcast. All right, here's the Q&A. Right, an extraordinary, okay, so the question was, uh, what about uh, the Christians who were in the Twin Towers when they came down during September 11th, where bodies were vaporized? Um, what do you do then? Well, um, in extraordinary circumstances like that, you know, you do what you can, right? Most of them you're not going to find. But what do we hope? We, we hope that God will put their bodies back together again, right? Because he can. Cremation is not a matter, or burial is not a matter of what can God do? God can do anything, right? The question is, what is the best confession for what we believe, right? What do we believe? And I think that's the question that should drive every decision that we make, whether it's moving to a new area, finding a new job, um, and especially how at end of life, if you truly believe that this is your last confession, right? This is the last thing you are going to say to the world, then your funeral should reflect that, right? And your headstone should reflect that.
So, should you have beer cans on your headstone? Is that a very good confession? Things like, uh, e even things like what your occupation was. Does that really matter now? What matters is what you believe. If you go to the old cemeteries and then you go to the new ones, you're going to see a huge difference, right? My dad was talking about this. They were walking through a cemetery uh, up in Minnesota uh, where my, my great-grandpa is actually buried. And you can see a vast difference between the old cemetery and the new cemetery. The old cemetery has crosses, things like Bible passages, uh, hymn verses, and the like. The new cemetery is pretty drab by comparison, right? And so I think, too, we've kind of lost some of these things. And uh, even my mom told me the other day is that uh, she didn't really think about these things until she was told um, that we should view this as a last confession, right? She didn't really care what her stone was going to be like. But if you view it as a last confession, that even though you're dead, you're still proclaiming what Christ has done for you, uh, that changes everything. That changes everything of your funeral service. That changes everything of uh, how you are to be interred. And it changes what your monument is going to be like. Okay? So that should really be the driving question for us is, what kind of a confession is this making? And is it something that I really want to confess? So yeah, you had a question? Okay, the question was, is, um, is cremation just burning the body or is there more to it? Uh, what's interesting with cremation is, is that when they put the body into the oven, uh, they heat it up really, really hot, um, and all of the skin and all of the fat and all of the muscle, all of that burns away, okay? It all becomes heat, okay? So the weight that you feel in the urn for the cremains is just the bones. Now, the crematorium never gets hot enough to turn the bones to, to ash, okay? So what they have to do is basically take an industrial food processor and take the fragments of the bones and I, you're, you laugh, but that's what they do. I mean, you guys asked, so I mean, hope you guys didn't eat yet. <laughs> um, you know, so, um, but that's what they do, right? So, yeah, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, it is great violence that's done to the body. I mean, and, but on the other side, too, I think violence is done to the body um, in embalming as well, right? Which is why I'm of the opinion that the best confession is, is to, you know, just bury them, Right? Um, and I hope that they look, like, that's the thing. I hope I look terrible in the casket. You know, everybody always says, well, oh, they look so good. <laughs> They're dead, right? Can't look that good, right? And the point is, is that um, death is an enemy, right? Death is an enemy, and it's conquered by Christ. So, Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm going to put this in my own words because it's easier, okay? Um, a lot of times people will say that funerals are for the living and not for the dead. That is false, okay? That is false. The funerals are not just for the living. They're also for the dead. The Christian burial is for the dead. 
It is, to, it, it is to recognize that they believed in Jesus. It is to thank God for the good that he did through them. And it, is also, it also shows us, too, of their good works that follow them, right? Because even after you're dead, guess what? Your good works still follow you, and they're still doing good in the world. You know, how, you know how I can say that? Here's an example. How long have the apostles been dead? 2,000 years. Guess what? Their writings are still bringing people to faith all the time. Luther's been dead for fi over five, well, not quite 500 years, 450 years. But guess what? His sermons are still comforting people every day. The stuff that you do in this life still has an effect, which is one of the reasons why on the podcast I talked about why there is a need for a final general judgment, right? That at the end of the day, literally, God will actually commend us for all the good works that have continued throughout our lives. The thing is, too, on the other hand, guess what? The works of evil people are still leading people astray, right? So, so that's the thing. Funerals are not just for the living. They're also for the dead. They're also for the dead. And that's okay because they died in Jesus. And, they sh and we should thank God for that. We should thank God for the, for the person lying in the casket, for their example of faith, for how they serve their neighbor. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Who cares if they're not around? You know, we have celebrations all the time for people who are no longer around. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the question, so the the comment was, um, people will say that we get a new body, and that's false, right? Just like Jesus, our body will be the same as it is here, right? Jesus didn't get a new body, but he still bore the marks of his crucifixion, and uh, you see this in, in actually in Michelangelo's Last Judgment. So if you look really closely at the apostles, you will see some very interesting things. You will see. Uh, St. Bartholomew holding knives and this weird sort of shapeless mass. What is that? Does anybody know how St. Bartholomew was reputed to have died? That he was skinned alive. So in that, they, see, they show him um, carrying his own skin and the knives with which he was flayed. The same thing with John the Baptist. Oftentimes in iconography, you see him carrying his own head, Right? So the thing is, is that what they did is they made uh, a leap, right, a speculation, that the wounds that we suffer in this life for the Christian faith are trophies in the next life. Just as Jesus' wounds are not marks of shame, but they're marks of victory, right? I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, it's a great idea, right? I mean, you can believe it if you want, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's fascinating, right, that the things that we suffered here, we will be glorified there. And that is a, a wonderful comfort, um, especially for those who are martyred here, who die for the faith here. So, anything else? Yeah. Okay, so the question was, our good works follow us in death? Do our bad works follow us in death? 
So uh, for the Christian, for the, for the one who believes in Jesus, um, our evil works are not reckoned to us on account of what Christ did, right? This is why we pray every day, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Psalm 19 says, Who can discern his errors? Keep me from hidden faults and save me from presumptuous sins. Okay? Um, do our evil works still follow us? Do they still have an effect? They don't follow us into eternity, right? Uh, do they still have an effect here on earth? Yes, they do. Look at Solomon, right? I, Solomon, because of his love, his, uh, his love for his wives, which exceeded the first commandment, caused him to do some very awful things, which end up, ended up splitting his kingdom and uh, leading his children astray, okay? Did he repent of that? I believe he did. I think um, Ecclesiastes is a, uh, a firm confession from him that he repented of his sins before the end. However, our bad works actually do have an effect, right? Um, they do. Some more than others, right? Which is why we repent of them. Um, and uh, so, and why we should avoid them, right? So... Okay, so the question was, uh, does Gnosticism play into cremation uh, because Gnosticism is a denial of the body? So to give you a little background, Gnosticism was an ancient view that infiltrated the Christian church that said that what was evil in the world, the reason why there's evil in the world is because you're made up of stuff, right? You're a spark of light who is entrapped in a prison of decaying flesh, and your whole point is to escape that prison. Okay? That's what Gnosticism taught. Okay? We see it today in modifying forms. Okay? We see it today in uh, the talks about there being multiple genders. Okay? Where biology really has no meaning. What matters is, is what is in me. You also see it in some of the very extreme body modification stuff where people believe that uh, my body is the canvas and I can make whatever I want on it, okay? I think Gnosticism actually does play a lot into cremation. I've even heard it from some of our own members um, that, well, when I die, I go to heaven, and that's it, right? You know? Well, that's not it, though, right? That's not it. That the soul and the body will be put back together again, Right? that we will be raised in our flesh, that this is not bad. This is not an accessory, okay? This is not an accessory. This is me. This is me. And I'm going to get me back. And that's okay, right? It's okay to love the body. It's okay to, uh, and not just okay, but uh, it's really um, a celebration of what God has made. Right? So, yeah, Gnosticism plays a big part into this. That people think that the soul is somehow more important than the body. And it's not. The soul and the body go together. You're not whole without a body. 
And that's why Christ came. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ rose again. So that way you'd have your body back. So, yeah. Ha. Ah. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. Um so the the comment was is well it costs so much more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, you hear that a lot, right? That cremation is a lot more um is a lot more expensive and that sort of thing. Well, you know, uh, what I the the thing that I would recommend then is actually go and talk to your funeral director. Sitsuma Vogel, like here in town, is very good. Um, they will definitely work with you. Um, I know for sure that at least one of them uh, actually prefers burial to cremation. Okay? They will work with you. They, uh, they want you, uh, they want to respect your wishes. Okay? Um, and as for the money, I mean, Abraham paid an exorbitant amount for his wife Sarah's tomb. You know? to make sure that it was incontestable, right? Um, so the thing is, is like, and, and no doubt, you always have to watch yourself, right? Because sometimes uh, you can spend money so that way you have the biggest tombstone, right? Well, that's not the point, right? The point is making a good confession. And the thing is, is, you know, that is a mission, right? Because people are going to be walking around that cemetery 100 years from now, they're going to see it, right? What a wonderful thing. All right. Well, thank you very much. So have a good night. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. On Twitter at Clerical Heirs B for podcast or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.